0: Welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, oh, wow, I love sitting down with Deanne Smith for this episode. Uh, she is the best. I have known her for a very long time, but this is the first opportunity we've got to sit down and you know have a chat for 70 minutes. And uh, it's just such a wonderful opportunity to get to know someone better that you've known for a very long time. She's been one of the best... Uh, most compelling interesting comedians to be coming out to Australia uh, for over a decade now Um, I've got to do her shows in Canada as well she's such a generous host and creates such a wonderful atmosphere and vibe for comedians to perform in Um, I really I really really enjoyed this one you can probably tell in my voice she was an absolute delight and I couldn't have been happier spending the time with Deanne hey uh, there's a couple other podcasts that haven't come out yet Uh, Kitty Flanagan Jason Byrne uh, who are both performing at the comedy festival as well so when you hear this there's only going to be a couple of days left at the comedy festival by then maybe my will eagle shows are sold out already i don't know uh maybe they are maybe they aren't uh but i'm performing uh all weekend up until sunday so come and see a show if you get the opportunity uh but otherwise go and check out deanne or go and check out Andy Zaltzman or Kitty Flanagan or Jason Byrne or any of the other people who've uh, so generously given me their time uh, to do the podcast, Alex Edelman, go go and check out Alex Edelman, his Barry nominated show um uh, alex was brilliant on the podcast if you haven't heard that one yet check it out the denise scott episode i absolutely loved anyway go through the back catalogue you can rate it you can uh, follow us on facebook or twitter or instagram or any of those sort of places look for willosophy pod in the places that you enjoy things um sign up subscribe that way you won't miss an episode and uh, yeah tell people about it now that it's back now that it's regular and if you're enjoying it Uh, the best way to keep it regular is to spread the word around, get plenty of people listening. And uh, if plenty of people listen, maybe we can find a a sponsor or something which will pay for the costs of actually putting out the show uh, each week. So if uh, not, in the meantime, uh, if you'd like to support us a little bit with this, the best way to do it, of course, is as always is to come and see one of my live shows. But um, uh, if you can't do that and you want to support it in any way, chuck us a couple of bucks at uh, Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash tofot, T-O-F-O-P. Uh, that's where the Patreon page is for all the Tofop podcasts, Tofop, Fofop, um, Two Guys, One Cup, and of course, this one, philosophy. So uh, the money that goes there helps to uh, keep the lights on, pay our bills. Uh, you know, everyone involved in the podcast uh, gets paid. Uh, well, actually, that's not technically true at this stage, but everyone to do with uh, putting the podcast together, the technical people, Mike and Michael and James, all get paid every episode. And uh, it's your Patreon money that helps support uh, doing that. All right, there you go. Uh, That's the intro to this one. I love Dan Smith. I think you're going to love this interview too. Cheers. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, very excited to have our guest on today. So we've relaunched this podcast. I'm explaining as much to the audience as I am to my guest. I'm giving her some information (laughs) along the way. Thank you. Uh, We've relaunched this podcast. We managed to get 12 of them out in an entire year last year, which is what the audience referred to as nowhere near enough. So (laughs) instead, uh, we're going the opposite direction, seeing there's so many brilliant people that I love here during the comedy festival. We've been doing a whole bunch of these and I'm very excited to have our next guest on. I have known her for... A very long time now, and uh, but you know, as the world works, you rarely get to sit down and have you know a decent conversation with somebody about you know these sort of topics. So I'm very excited to have you here. This is how it starts. Um, what's your name? Who are no? What's your name? I got that wrong. It's not even what's your name. The question is, who are you?
1: Hi, um, I'm Deanne Smith. When I was a kid, I wanted to answer that question by, uh, "I'm Deanne Smith," but my friends call me D. <laughs> It's always hard for me to know which name to give. And who am I? Well, the other night, I whispered in an audience member's ear because I thought there were reviewers in the room. And I was like, how are you enjoying the show? But I was feeding them all the lines. And I was like, how would you describe myself? And then I whispered to them, joy manifest in human form. And uh, (laughs) the best part is they said it. And then the reviewer printed it, even like cheekily, like in quotes or whatever. Right. But I was like, you did it, guys. It's right. in. That's next year's quote. Forget about it. It's so there. I think that's who I'd like to be. Joy manifest in human form? I
0: think that's a really apt description. It's rare that somebody can kind of have a nice description for themselves, which is actually also the way that other people see them. Because <laughs> I think there's often a gap between those two things. But yeah. I when I look at your work and having known you as a person, it does feel like that is a intrinsic to... Um, who you are as a human being. And so I'm going to ask you the other question, which is do you have a particular philosophy towards something? I wonder if the the two intersect in some way.
1: Yeah, just off mic, you, asked, you said this is what yeah. we're going to talk about and I was a little panicking about the philosophy because um, I don't know how to articulate it and I'm sure I would just say I, the main thing that I try to go for or lead myself back to if I forget is just increasing love. Approaching things from a place of love And trying to bring love to situations and people, so that manifests in trying to be more empathic, trying to be compassionate, trying to look at things from other people's point of view, and Uh, and try to be loving towards myself. Like as much as I said, oh, I'm joy manifest in human form. I'm also just a bundle of anxieties and issues, you know.
0: So is this a thing that has always been a constant of you? Have you always been a person who's kind of you know, tried to look on the, you know, the positive side of things to try to view, to walk a mile in other people's shoes and view it from their perspective? Or is this something that is, you know, developed lately in your life?
1: No, I think I've always been that way. And I think I would have characterized myself until I did comedy, which I feel like saved my life and is just the best thing ever, you know. Um, but I would have thought that I was kind of... Um, I don't know, standoffish or depressed or quiet. Um, But then having done comedy, I can see that what people respond to and how they describe me back to myself. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? Yes, I do have this bit of like a kid sister vibe. And I am always trying to make people happy. And that comes from a genuine place. And so, yeah, I don't even remember the question anymore. Well,
0: so I just want to explore that idea a little bit more, which is this, idea that sometimes people who are trying to make other people happy, it, it can come from a place of them not being happy themselves. Like this yeah, is yeah. the facilitation of other people's happiness, you know, is a replacement for the fact that they can't facil- facilitate their own happiness. But that doesn't seem to be what you're saying about where it comes from for you.
1: No, I just think, it, it, yeah, if you have to attach to anything in life, like what, what is it all about? What does it mean? I, I always come back to the very cheesy and basic idea of love
0: so when you say love what do you mean by that
1: I mean the the beautiful feeling you get in your heart when you know that you've done something right or you've treated someone right or you've treated yourself right
0: Uh, let's talk about treating yourself we are so deep in it so early on this is is great I I,
1: I just like where are we gonna be in an hour I know
0: well who knows like you know we'll talk about death at some stage that'll bring the mood down oh yeah of course Uh, but um so Loving yourself, firstly, tell me what that means to you.
1: That's the one that I'm working on the most. Because that's, I mean, I
0: think that's the most difficult one. I mean, as performers, the idea of like loving an audience or receiving love from the audience yeah, that exchange of love that Mm -hmm. you're trying to give them something wonderful that they can take with them, the idea that you're taking a group of disparate strangers who might never talk to each other on the street and getting them to connect in a moment with an idea when they're all laughing together that's them all agreeing on something that's even the if best. they yeah. did, don't agree on anything else in the world you've brought that together so that's a great bit of love to give you know, some strangers and in return you know on the good nights they give you that sort of love back that you get but yeah. but that's not the love that you give yourself it's a completely separate thing to that transactional nature of you know performance so the loving yourself thing is 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 much more difficult i think
1: yeah i think so too and it's only something um you know through years of therapy i'm not currently in therapy but i want to get back into it and exploring all those ideas that i realized you know and i think i think this is common for people but in the past like i the, the voice in my head i would speak to myself in such an unkind um horrible way just it was like constantly what have you done wrong today what are you about to do wrong let's ruminate on all the things you've done in the past that are horrible but but none of them would be you know um until I kind of realized the disconnect between how I would speak to myself in my head and how I would speak to anyone else in the world a friend you know I wouldn't beat I wouldn't beat someone up the same way that I did to myself
0: I think well in in a lot of people's case and certainly in a lot of performers cases that I think is an internal you know, there is a, if you are trying to pick apart the world, like if your brain works on a way where you are looking at an idea yeah, and then you are trying to look at that idea from a whole bunch of angles and pick it apart and see what's at the core of it and, you know, then see if you can put it back together in a different direction, then it's hard to switch those mechanics of how your brain works off, yeah. you know, when you're judging your day-to-day and what you're doing with your life. So how did you manage to go from... You know, that being a kind of negative self talk, you yeah. know, in your head to that being more of a going, I'm going to treat myself a bit more the way that I judge and treat other people.
1: I'm not sure. I think it was like just a question of, first of all, trying to even catch that negative voice, like recognizing that it's not objective reality. It's not objective reality that, like, man, you really screwed up this morning when you, because it could, it could go from the tiniest thing, it could go from, uh, I don't know, you made the wrong choice for breakfast or whatever. Um, So I think it's, first of all, catching that voice and then uh, just as much as you can trying to, first of all, negate it, neutralize it. And then when you can, crank it positive. That's the best. Like that was like a revelation for me even just a few years ago that like um, not only do you not have to feel bad about things, you can choose to feel good about things. How good is that? I mean, that is... Like choices that you've made, you know, like... uh, gosh I can't I can't think of a good example but I will I will say like and this is a little joke that I've done in the shows I don't mean to do jokes here but it illustrates the point of a few years ago I, I was in therapy and I realized that I'm hard on myself this is what the she was like you're really hard on yourself and I was like yeah I'm really hard on myself and I felt that and then my immediate next thought of course was like Oh, I should have figured this out years ago. I'm such an idiot. And I was right. like, no, no, there it is, there it is. It's like a question of catching it, you know? Does that resonate with you at all? I love that. Yeah.
0: That's, uh, a, that's a beautiful thought, but B, it's also a very beautiful joke. That's a, It's just a, a great, like, joke as much as it is a great observation about, you know, who we are as human beings. Um, one of the more interesting things, I was a bit different. Like, certainly – the one thing that I, the most useful thing, and I've talked about this on the podcast before it comes up a little bit, but the most useful thing that I ever got out of therapy because I was going at one stage, particularly because I was having a work relationship that as, as in like a, a power dynamic relationship mm-hmm. at work that was giving me a lot of trouble and I was having a really hard time dealing with it. And eventually we got down to the the nub of, yeah, with the therapist and I about what the actual problem was. Yeah. And the problem was that the people that I was working for, they wanted me to like them. Like that's what they really wanted. Oh. They wanted me to be excited to be working there and tell them how much I like them and blah, blah, blah. And that's A, just not how i work mm-hmm. in a general sense like my way of saying that i like working for you is by coming and doing a really good job and not complaining about anything i'm just not one of those people who feels like we all then have to go around on friday night and have a spa together and oh, watch the yeah. football or whatever and the other thing is that they were doing some things that made me not like them like i had some legitimate reasons to you know be uncomfortable about it and then my therapist said to me because my thing is like if i'm having a problem with you then i kind of It's not like I'm a person who would be like, this is the problem I'm having with you, but I'm not just going to pretend that something isn't problematic. And she said to me, she goes, but do you realize that most of the drama is coming out of the fact that you just won't pretend that you like them? She said, it would be easier for you. It will clean up all the things you're complaining about, all the things that are bothering you. If you just go in every day and lie to them about how much fun you are having, I bet all these other problems clear up. And it seems so counterintuitive, right? Mm-hmm. Like to not be truthful in that situation. But she was hundred percent right. The minute that I just started going in and just starting with, I'm so you know, grateful to be here. Thanks for that. You know, just anytime they made some. And then she said, and every time you lied to them, you're not losing any power. In fact, you're gaining power because you know that you're not, you're now in control of the situation. You're just huh. doing it in a different way. Yeah. And it was the greatest bit of advice I ever got in my life. Because the truth of it is. Once I started being positive about them, they stopped being negative about the other stuff. And I actually did have a better relationship with them. I did feel more positive. Towards and
1: then them. did it become self fulfilling?
0: It did become, yeah. yeah. It, it was a, an amazing counterintuitive, you know, sort of game changer for me, which was I could just, I mean, I guess it's fake it until you make it, you know, yeah. in regard to the nature of the relationship, but I was getting in my own way. You know?
1: Totally, yeah.
0: Anyway, uh, so... Th-
1: therapy is so good like that because it's like a friend you just have to pay a little bit to, to be really selfish with, <laughs> well, right? Well, that's the interesting yeah. thing,
0: right, when you're a comedian, I think, is finding a safe space to be able to express your thoughts and anxieties in a way that isn't comedic.
1: Because mm. if you're doing
0: it on stage, like if you're using the stage as therapy, and sometimes it can be both, like yeah. it, it can be... But it, you're essentially packaging a real life experience into something that becomes an audience's story. You know, it no longer becomes your story. It becomes a story for the audience. Whereas a therapist, you don't have to, you know, you're, you're paying them. They don't need to hear a laugh every minute or whatever in that situation. So it's a different conversation, right?
1: I, yeah. And I realized I needed to um, either get more real in therapy. this was years ago or change therapists because I found myself about six sessions in, I was doing bits, right? Because she she was the style who she didn't like initiate much conversation. She just yeah. kind of wanted you to Sat sit down and, and you yeah. To talk. And, and then at the some guys. point, I was like, "Ooh," <laughs> 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 just started like, and it was about like, <laughs> 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 you know what I mean yeah. about switching into that mode, yeah. <laughs> It was about like my real anxieties, but I did it in a way that I had done it on stage before and kind of gave it to her that way. And I think it was a bit of a test that she did not pass because she didn't pick up on it. Right. And she was just sitting there laughing, like having a great time. And I was like, wait a minute. And then I laughed like, why did I pay her for me to just do bits at her for the last 20 minutes? What
0: is it about talking about, you know, these things? that is powerful because like I've heard as many people talk about going to therapy and it causing more problems than you know I mean like there's maybe some things you don't need to talk about you can overthink things things, yeah yeah, sometimes it's maybe you just go actually I didn't need to talk to a stranger about this for an hour I probably could have just forgotten about it you know I kind of probably could have just moved on from it or pushed it aside is there a is there a value in... What What value do you find in talking about things that are, you know, whether it be your anxieties or other things that yeah. you're talking about in those situations? What is the value that you are getting out of it?
1: To me, the value is... Um... Like, kind of knowing that I'm not necessarily gonna work on this stuff on my own without a reason. So, and like I said, I'm not uh, going at the moment, but when I do go, it's like I never wanna go. I'm always like, I'm fine, there, you know, but um, so it's this reluctance to go, but that's like this weekly commitment that I have to keep with myself and with the other person to just see what's going on in my life. So, to me, it's like pay, paying a smart friend to pay attention. To me, the best moments are when they can come back at you and go, you realize like you've been talking about this for a while or I'm connecting this to something you said about your dad seven sessions ago. And you're like, oh, yeah, like I just that bit of guidance, I think, is incredible. I really think everybody could benefit from it. Um, But as you say, I see the point. There's also like there's a point at which you can be ruminating about tiny things that you can just let go.
0: Uh, so when you're putting together a show, because this show you're doing in Melbourne as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Oh, yes. Is a bit different to uh, where you are ordinarily in your schedule, is my impression. You normally maybe bring out something that's, you know, you've done a little bit more than the show that you've brought out this year. Is that Oh, yeah. Right? So
1: this one is really interesting because I tried for whatever reason. Because I'm just like this, I guess. had a great, um, great season last year. I loved my show. It was so much fun. I called it post-joke era, which felt like, you know, a good, a good timing for a title. And it kind of, there's so much that could go in there. And then um, this year, as you know, we write the blurbs for this festival in like about October. They're uh-huh. all due. The, the, the title, the image, the description of the show. And I was like, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to commit to a theme. Because I never know what I'm doing by October. But I thought I could commit to a theme uh so i was like i'm gonna talk about money that's something that's a taboo that's in everyone's life i mean it's not a bad idea but i just did not do it and then i called this show uh worth it i i bought all these books about like the economy because i wanted to learn about the economy and capitalism i really have a stack of books at home and uh i did this photo shoot a green background i'm wearing a a bow tie made of american money that i made myself (laughs) like i'm i was committed to the theme and then uh flash forward it's like January I'm like oh god like I had maybe 15 minutes of kind of okay kind of money related material and Will's laughing over there rubbing his eyes um and I I just couldn't do it so the 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 way that I work is like I have to talk about whatever's fascinating me at the moment and what's obsessing me at the moment and I can't I've never tried to commit to a theme because it's just not how I work. And this year that I tried, I completely failed. So the show is, um, uh, I'll come out for like 30 seconds and do a quick, like, hey, if you're here because the blurb drew you in, just understand. I did not write that show." You know, I sneak a couple of jokes in there um, and just let everybody know that's not what we're going to see. I don't think anybody cares. I was
0: about to say, I'm not sure that people are coming along going, finally yeah finally that show let's talk about this finally show that yeah. comedy show that's going to take down capitalism <laughs> right that's the one
1: <laughs> i know i know I know, it's embarrassing on every level. It's not
0: though, because that's the nature of like, I mean, people ask me all the time about the the wheel puns in the name. And I said, I'd love to tell you some great story, but it's all practicality. Like I can't call my show, you know, 22 things I learned from my dad because you're asking me what it's called in August, you know, so I can put Adelaide Fringe Rego in and I'm in the middle of the previous tour. I haven't started thinking about the next tour. Just give it a name that promises that it's a new show. That's all that the name needs to do. It, yeah, I might as well just call it, yep, it's a new show. Come and see the new show. <laughs> it's a new show,
1: part 19. Right. Um, you
0: know, I don't think that people, I mean, I think it's pretty rare that people are coming along hoping that the grand question right? in the title will be answered. I think know? I
1: finally figured that out. I mean, I, I've, I've always, I've never worked that way. And then somehow this year I'm like, I'm going to do it. Because I think I appreciate when people do it. I admire that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now I, thank you for saying that because now I feel even more secure. Yeah. Like, I never need to, to try to do that again.
0: Um, tell me uh, this, what is it that fascinates you? Like, you know, when you said you want to write about things that are engaging you, things that you are fascinated by, that's how you work. That's where your material comes from. Yeah. Um, so then how do you kind of decide what it is you're, I know this sounds like a weird question. How do you decide what you're fascinated by? But there is some, decision-making process because you could as easily be fascinated by the real housewives of california as Mm -hmm. be fascinated by capitalism or feminism or whatever the many various you know things in between so how when you're saying what is it that i'm fascinated by what is it that i want to talk about how do you how are you actually making that decision in your head
1: yeah i mean i I would say i don't know that i'm deciding it as much but as you said there's there's so much going on i i definitely steer away from politics in um, like on a small scale because there's so much going on right now that I feel like it's best left to everybody else like it's best left to the nightly shows with their team of writers and everything is changing so quickly and Twitter and Twitter I mean, the yeah. idea
0: of doing topical political material is just like I mean because even if you came up with a great joke chances are by the time that you do it the third night of your show, 1800 people have done it on twitter yeah
1: yeah that's exactly it it's um
0: so what does that mean then because i actually have found that as well yeah i I used to joke about some things that would be those sort of things and don't at all anymore for the exact same reason Mm -hmm. so what does that lack of opportunity there open up as a different opportunity in the way that you approach because you're still a person i think who wants to Not talk about those small issues, but you want to talk about the larger, perhaps, themes and issues that those things are about. That's exactly
1: it. But let me also just say, I always think of you as someone who I really admire the way you approach political topics. And you seem to do it so quickly. Like, I definitely remember being like side stage during some of the galas and you're just out there with these amazing, like really current jokes. I'm like, how does this guy do this? Um- Lack of other skills, <laughs> <This> is <laughs> I've managed to lock well, myself into yeah. a career and
0: I am <laughs> desperately holding on to it for as long as it will happen because I know that... Every year I get closer and closer to it being over. (laughs) I feel like I've had a good run and I can just feel the wobble on the, you know, on the roller coaster at the top. Where you go, hang on, the big drop happens any minute now. Let's just see if we can ah. bring out a couple more moments of enjoyment out of what has been a blessed and lucky career. (laughs) Um, So what do you do then? How do you look at that bigger picture?
1: Um, I mean... I, okay, this is, maybe I have to take it sideways a little bit, but there's so. something happening in uh, Toronto at the moment, which is where I live most of the year, and I'm sure it's happening everywhere, where these, these rooms are cropping up, and it's a wonderful development in comedy, but these rooms are explicitly, like, feminist, queer, f- queer anti-oppressive, safe spaces you know a place where anybody who's n- felt unwelcome in a traditional comedy club can go and know that you can just relax you're not going to be the butt of a joke you know um and i think it's great i think it's great that the scene is developing and at the same time it made me realize that i don't like doing comedy where there's no tension right um because i'd been doing like a certain brand of feminist comedy in uh, unsafe spaces and comedy clubs and whatnot. And I think I kind of got used to or started to thrive on that uh, that tension and the back and forth. And the I'll, I'll throw you guys a little sexist bone so that I can make this larger point about something else. And um, I'll talk about how I perv on girls so that maybe you can hear me when I say maybe none of us should, you know, or we had to be more careful in the way that we do it. Um, so then I found myself doing these like feminist rooms and they just felt like a rally. Right. Like everyone's like, yeah, we agree. And I'm like, <laughs> oh man. And yeah, I didn't really realize that that was part of my comedic personality or my personality that I don't, I don't find it so interesting when everybody already agrees.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because when we talk about political stuff, yeah. I often find if I will play a, like a, like a knight that is a political night and do my political material, I, I get that, you know, the, the, a round of agreements mm-hmm. on everybody. Yes, here, here. Yes, yes, we believe in marriage equality as well, here, sir here. And, yeah. you know, the Republic and, well, all these, you know, hot-button issues. But also what I will tend to find is that my material probably isn't quite as strong as they are because my material has been built to take those sort of ideas to a big, broad yes. audience of people who don't necessarily – like, my, you know, my piece about, you know, why – we should change the date of australia day in the political room you can just go straight to the you know dispossession of our you know indigenous people and they understand why we should change it but my routine goes for 10 minutes and i run through a whole bunch of other things to sell it to an audience who don't give a shit about the indigenous people you know i try to get so there is the tension of like taking those ideas to a space that isn't just filled with people who agree with the ideas that you already have. So talk to me about that because I think that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like you nailed it. This is, that's exactly it. That, um, you want to communicate to a larger group of people than the people that already agree. Um, and I, I found the same thing. I found that, um, more so in the past people think that I do political, like, you know, political style humor or something. And they'll put me on these gigs. I'm like, I don't, this isn't really what I'm doing. Um, but I think just by, in general, kind of, you know, definitely being a feminist, being queer. Last year I was talking about being a gender on stage. Just by virtue of being who I am, in some places that's going to look political. And in other places it's going to look like, yep, you're just like all of us. What right. else? What else? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're all that too. Yeah. That's why we came. Yeah. <laughs> what else have you got?
1: Yeah, I had this one, um, like this little beginning of the joke about the agender stuff where I go, you know, regardless of how you perceive me, I don't feel like a woman. I don't want to be a man. Gross. No offense, everyone. And then I do like a big sweeping gesture over the audience. That works when there are men and women in the audience, when it's 70% queer and everybody has the same haircut as me. They're like, yeah, Yeah. what? Why are you even saying this? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That was assumed. Um, (laughs) So that's that's interesting, though, because I think that
0: gender seems to be, because obviously Australia... And this, you know, I mean, I don't think that I'm wrong on this, but if I am, please feel free to tell me that I am. Uh, but obviously, we'll let,
1: the, we'll let the internet handle that. <laughs>
0: my experience of, you know, having performed, uh, you know, a, a little bit in, in Canada and, you know, obviously visit there a lot. And then obviously, you know, perform the majority of my career here is that, you know, I, I well, put it this way. I still had some good chunks on, you know, how we should have marriage equality that I couldn't do in Canada for about a decade while I could still do them in Australia. You right. know, we were lagging behind in regard to those sort of things. Um, gender seems to be certainly, if you were looking at something now in Australia, that the you know, the sort of marriage equality opponents have moved on to, it seems to be about and around definitions and uncomfortable, you know, being uncomfortable with people defining gender as sort of non-binary, if that makes sense. Yeah, like that yeah. Not being, Is that, do you feel like that is, is? And what is the difference between how that's perceived in Canada and how it's perceived in Australia?
1: Oh, you know, I don't know necessarily everything that's going on with legislation, but I think that Canada definitely has some things in place where, um, it's not too difficult, I could be wrong, but I think it's better than some, some countries where if you say, you know, if you're transitioning or you say the gen- the gender that I am doesn't match the gender on all of my, yeah, on my birth certificate, on my driver's license, whatever, you can just go through a procedure and take care of it. I think it's, you can definitely run into some jerks in that bu- bureaucratic process, but for the most part, I think it's kind of straightforward and people understand that that happens and that's just a part of life. You know, it's not, I don't think there's a lot of... Um, fuss or worry about but then what are we gonna do with these people it's like well you just do this and you know then it's fine (laughs) um I I was on radio the other day um and somewhat shocked I don't even know how it came up it was me and another comedian we were meant to just talk about comedy this is at the ABC and um somehow the guy oh have you he he really felt like he crowbarred in this Uh, marriage equality thing into the conversation which was so strange he he was like have you noticed a lot of changes in Melbourne like we have marriage equality now and this and that and somehow he this radio host got on to the point like well you know but 40% of people voted against it and they have their reasons and I'm like what are we what is happening in this interview what are we even talking about right now Um, yeah thank you for your perplexed face it was so strange and felt like such a like 180 of the conversation and made me realize that perhaps things are uh, more tense here than I realize, or maybe there's. I don't know if this guy. I don't know how this guy felt about it, or if he was trying to protect listeners that he I believed think that were probably.
0: It's this, you know. Unfortunately, what has happened in this country is that um, the national broadcaster, the ABC in particular, has um, been forced into this idea of presenting what I would say is false false balance mm. in the same way as if they have somebody on talking about the dangers of climate change they feel compelled to have some you know, wing nut on who says that it's not happening right. yeah I guess that,
1: that is sometimes how a lot of media approaches things it's like this other side
0: right we have to show the other side even yeah. if the other side are completely wrong or if the i mean the fact that he said 40 percent of people voted no that that actually didn't happen some people just didn't vote that's what i brought like, up thank yeah. you i was right. like
1: i assume there's more people that are in favor uh, i was like that's 40 percent of who voted there's yeah. gonna be more people in favor of yes that didn't uh, Yeah, vote. absolutely yeah. because
0: the ones who were re- the ones who were really against it voted no of course right and most yeah. people assumed it was going to get through so there'd be some young people and stuff and there was evidence of this who were just like well i don't need to vote Mm-hmm. This is going to happen, you know, and luckily it did or that would have been trouble. But the other thing is that the, the around the world, the experience has been every single place after they've brought in marriage equality, that even if it was 60-40 when the vote happened, uh, it'll be 70-30 by two years later and then it'll be 80-20 by, because many of the people who were conned into thinking that, Suddenly once, you know, gay people could get married, you know, the fucking sky'd fall in and you know, all the children would be taught how to be gimps at yeah, you know, primary school or whatever, you know, <laughs> fear campaign you know was run. They suddenly realize, I don't think my kids had a GIMP class at yeah. all. I feel like I was lied to. <laughs> all those gay people seem real happy. So why do I
1: love this image of the five year old GIMP? Oh, that's so funny. Uh I'm
0: just interested in that in a perspective material in some ways is I guess the question I'm asking you though because when you're coming from somewhere you know that is yeah you know, has been more progressive than Australia has been mm-hmm. does it mean that you have to change the perspective of you know something that you're talking about because the audience are at a different stage of the evolution of, you know, where they are on those topics? Or has it never been a a problem in that sense?
1: I don't have to change too much uh, between Canada and Australia. Although a couple years ago, I was making fun of Australia with a joke, uh, one of my earliest jokes in Canada that I don't even really do anymore. But um, I joked about being gay divorced because I got well, you know, quote, "gay married," and then a year later I got gay divorced. So I, I had fun before you guys had marriage equality by being like, "You guys are so far behind!" <laughs> like, there's so much more going on right now. Gay divorce is happening. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I haven't, I haven't found that I'd have to change too much between Canada and Australia.
0: Um, what has been the appeal? I mean, you're a traveler. Uh, why, yeah. why, why is that? For a start, like, what was it that you know? Because there's often yeah, know comedians who stay where they are yeah you know, and build their career around where it is that they are based and they live and then there seems to be another sort of bunch of you know traveling vagabonds who you know pack up their suitcase every now and again and and I don't just mean to travel around and you know play shows do the road, but I mean yeah coming to Australia to do a couple of festivals and some you know shows and stuff like that that's a huge chunk of <laughs> it's a big
1: track. the year, you yeah. know,
0: and you've done it now. How many times have you been at uh, Melbourne for the festival?
1: I mean, in Melbourne, I'm not even sure, at least six times over the year. And, and I missed a few six years over here like
0: there. 10 or 11 years, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's been a, a decade at least of you kind of coming out doing yeah, shows. So that's sure. a lot of commitment to be coming back here and, you know, traveling around the world. What, what part of that is, you know, satisfying to you? What, what do you get out of the sort of traveling to do your work?
1: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take it back and just tell you that I started coming to Australia because of a girl, of course. The reasons I do anything ever. <laughs> um, and so uh, after we, because she was Australian and it made perfect sense in our lives then. It was right. like, this is incredible. You live in Canada and then we go visit your family, spend some months in your country, you know, and then we broke up and I just kept coming, cause I had enough momentum here and enjoyed it. Um, now I come here, and, and I've thought about it a lot. But when I'm here, it, it feels weirdly like home. You know, there is this uh, group of people that I've known for over 10 years. And it's just... The, the festival time is amazing. You know, you just go out. It's like everyone you know and love is in the Melbourne CBD. And it's just easy to run into people, have a drink, talk about comedy. I, I love the whole vibe and I love the whole Australian scene now. And I have enough friends that I come back. Do you find um, it
0: um, amazing? Not amazing. Amazing is probably the wrong word, the wrong way to put it. But... um. There are, I spent kind of eight years over the last decade, you know, doing a lot of touring in America, you yeah. know, sort of going on the road, like playing clubs, doing the proper, you know, like road experience and at, just over the nature of like, you know, if you end up coming back to some places enough, you know, if I'm in Cleveland every year, if I'm in Denver every year, or if I'm in, you know, some places, suddenly after five or six years, you're suddenly like, oh, oh hang on, I have an audience here. Right. And there's a whole bunch of people in Denver. Who are fans of mine? Yeah, and so Come great. out to my shows, yeah. right? Which is weird, you know, because you're just like, I get it here. I'm from here. This is where I started. Yeah, you know, if people didn't come and see me here, I'd be disappointed. But you, in a whole other country, have a whole bunch of people who are fans of yours who've probably been watching you over the years, and are, you know, you're the first person they go go and see when you decide to come out, and that that must be quite a like delightful thing to know that when, even when you're just at home you yeah. know when you you know <laughs> oh. back at home you're like well, you know what there's a little uh, Australian audience sitting down under waiting for me to come back
1: <laughs> That's so cute I've never really thought about it that way but it is true I would say that like I feel like Australian audiences uh, probably know me better as a comic than anywhere else because right. they have like seen this development. And Australia is very lucky. You know this more from having traveled around, but I think you really have dedicated comedy fans here. And in general, Australians are really uh, what I would call comedy savvy comedy literate I feel like you have your own strong scene that's developing and your own legacy and Australian comics that have been around for years and then you get the kind of American influence and you get the UK influence I find that Australians can talk about comedy and appreciate comedy in a way um, that's slightly more nuanced maybe than uh, general Canadian crowds for sure
0: we definitely get that I mean that observation you have just had there is I think is such a good one which is because our style was almost equally influenced by the British and the Americans, you know, it's actually added, you know, there's a very strong storytelling tradition here, but it's kind of punctuated with jokes Mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, the the American influence is, you know. Uh, And we don't have that thing that the Canadians have of being next to America and everything that comes with being next to America, and we're far enough away from Britain to understand that. But it's also meant that British comedians can come here and do very well. And American comedians can come here and do very well and Canadian comedians because we're not used to just a style of comedy as an audience. You know, you can bring something here and people will go, okay, yeah, all right, That you know, we're prepared for this as well
1: yeah i love that that like and i started coming here early on in my comedy development like maybe year two or something so i feel like in many ways i've been influenced by australia i think people are starting to know australian comics more all over the world and netflix is helping obviously um uh, more and more are getting invited to just for laughs all these all these places but i remember early on feeling like like, I had this amazing secret, and I would go back and tell my little open mic pals and everybody else, like, you gotta, you, but you should see what Will Anderson is doing. got there's this guy, Sam Simmons, you know, like, the, there was just no correlation, uh, in North America for what was going on here. And it was exciting to feel like
0: you will have seen this festival. I mean, I've been doing it for 22 years now, but which is
1: it blows my mind, but yeah,
0: to see the last decade for me, it's it, how much it's changed. And, that next level of, you know, generation of comedians who have now come through. Like I was saying to somebody backstage at my show last night that I've seen, I've only seen five shows this festival and all five of them would any other year at the festival be the best show that I would have seen at the festival. Wow. And there's another probably 10 or 15 that people tell me are equally as good. You know, you have this range of people like, you know, Ann Edmonds and Becky Lucas and Nate Valvo and, you know, all these wonderful people, you know, Laura Davis, who I just think oh, is Oh yeah, of course. And, but like the fact that Laura Davis isn't a household name, the fact that Laura Davis isn't somebody, I mean, who, and I'm going to, I'm determined. Yeah. This is my new thing. It's like, I'm determined to mention Laura Davis's name at any stage I'm loving I possibly this. can. Because, I do it
1: in Canada. Let's talk more yeah. about Laura Davis.
0: <laughs> like, I mean, I'm an, an amazing comedian. I haven't yeah. seen this year's show, but I've heard it's, I saw last year's and it was probably my, my favorite show I saw in the entire festival. And, uh, I've heard this year's is as equally as good. And this is, this is what this festival is now. Yeah. You know, you can go and see somebody and see these people making these, you know, amazing pieces of work. It's kind of crazy to me, particularly in the last decade how, much that next generation has flourished
1: yeah it's incredible and Laura I'd love to talk about Laura for a minute so uh, I've been a fan of hers forever uh, and but it was uh, 2015's Ghost Machine which she's doing again this year that's the one she's doing I think that was the one that really blew my mind and I felt like she just became I feel like she really embraced her strengths or things you know she's a very like sweet and soft-spoken kind of person and I think that Could have been like a detriment to her in blustery, bam, 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 bam style of comedy, what we're used to. But I don't know what she did, but she just took control of it. And Ghost Machine is just a lovely show. And she hits all these topics suicide, you know, depress, existential angst in this really smart way that. I would go back to Canada, and I would tell people, "I saw the show in this basement." Laura Davis, you don't know, or she's this, you know, twenty-six-year-old Australian. I'm like, she's doing stuff that is like surpassing the level, and this is a few years ago before the quote scandal. Uh, you know, surpassing kind of Louis C.K. level of comedy in what she's achieving. She and- does
0: also actually force a lot of the comedians to watch her masturbate, which is the only <laughs> de- the only downside that I can find about her. <laughs>
1: I mean, I enjoy it, so I've never complained. Yeah, that's true um, equality. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a horrible image! <laughs> She's such a sweet girl. I
0: know. Um, it's a, I can only I can say it because I feel pretty safe. Yeah. That those words are never <laughs> going to come <laughs> back to <haunt> me. <laughs> um, oh, it's just that like so mentioning
1: she, the name Lucy K is so yeah. dirty now that I felt I didn't want to compare them. But, I, but well, okay,
0: L- let me t- talk about that. Yeah, because, let's talk about um, that. And look, you know, this is certainly not a, um, you know. Uh, an interview where, like, uh, yeah, hopefully, it's ever going to be one of those. You know, what's lines. it like to be a woman in you know, comedy or anything like that? But obviously, there is so much debate around, what, the behaviour of people mm-hmm. in comedy right yeah. now, and and a lot of it has to do with the changing of the times. You know, uh, in, in that idea that you know this is now, as as in the broader world. Yeah, women within comedy—not uh, just women, like—but the 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 unrepresented minorities, what, but aren't minorities, yeah. of course, but have been seen as minorities within the industry, or have been made to feel like minorities within the industry. You know, uh, we've got a lineup, we've got a woman on, you know, yeah. we've got a lineup, we've got an Asian guy on, like you know what I mean? Like the idea that you're the token representative of who you are—that feels like those walls have kind of crashed down in a pretty major way now at least they're in the process of being smashed down and and people are dealing with the various consequences of that on various levels how do you feel about where comedy is in that sort of broader sense of you know what sort of space it's becoming for different performers and how it is changing. Do you understand the question? Yeah, that I'm I think I'm so. I'm asking it in a very clumsy way because <laughs> it's a delicate, you know, enough topic. But I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: I around think it. yeah, I'm really excited about like in general I just see more underrepresented voices becoming more prominent. Um and i think i think in general in society and in comedy we'll just focus on comedy for a second there's this kind of backlash so there, we're, we we car we kind of are at this moment where a lot of people are like okay we've heard enough from straight white men for a minute we want to hear different points of view we want to hear what's going on with black women we want to hear from the <clears throat> indigenous point of view you know um even i like i <laughs> I would say that even I'm kind of taking a step back because I'm like, what's whatever. I'm queer. Who cares? Like we've <laughs> we've heard this enough um, that I think I think
0: you're queer. You're here. Yeah, we're used to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're used to it. Exactly. To it. <laughs> I'm here. I'm queer. We're all over it. Yeah, We're all over it. Um,
1: so I and I just generally I just love that all these uh, underrepresented voices feel like they're getting a chance to shine. I don't think. I don't think this is just a moment. I think it's a real change and it's only going to continue moving forward from here.
0: It doesn't feel like there's a way of, and by the way, not, not that I'm suggesting this should be the same, yeah. but there feels like there's no genie back in the bottle moment here. This no, feels I don't like, think so. I mean, it feels to me and you can feel it across society. And sometimes you, um, I, we were, uh, in the U S talking to some people about Gruen and, and there was a whole bunch of people who were really interested in doing the show over there. And, and the major thing it kept coming back to was, like, they were saying, you know, you're a white guy in your mid-40s. This is, for the first time ever in entertainment history, Yeah, this is not a great time, you know, to be you. And I was like, in my head, like, you know, your initial thing would be like... Yeah. But in the grand scheme of things, you're like, I've had a right run. I've had plenty of opportunities. And no one's saying that I have to stop doing show business. They're yeah. just saying that right now they're not going to put this show on TV. You know, like... It's good. It's a good thing. Like, you know, to be able to have gone from watching Kumail on stage at Meltdown when I first moved to, you know, America to see him being a leading man in fucking Hollywood and, you know, writing with Emily and Oscar-nominated movie and then suddenly being, you know, hosting Saturday Night Live and these sort of things, you're suddenly like, this is great. Yeah. Like, I love this. This is – and the more broad the performers are, the more broad the audience is you know? Because the great thing about Kamel is, or about, you know, whoever these people are that are coming in, you know, they bring with them a whole bunch of people who felt like they were neglected by comedy before.
1: That's it. That's what's really blowing my mind is like, in Toronto, there's this, um, the show called Shade run by this woman, Anne Simone. And she just routinely sells, sells out the show, had a year anniversary in this huge theater, sold it out. And it's, for the most part, this audience that, I haven't yet seen in comedy clubs. They're, you know, they're young, they're queer, they're multicultural. It's just awesome to perform for them. And it's awesome to sit in the audience and 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 uh, hear what the other comics are doing. And, you know, just going like, okay, yeah, that's not my experience. I don't know what it's like to have, you know, uh, Ethiopian immigrant parents, but it looks like, you know, 40% of this audience totally gets that reference. What? I mean, <laughs> um, I find that sort of thing really fun and, you know, mind expanding. Yeah, I, I,
0: I love nothing more than, um, it's like a, I went and saw Des Bishop. Do you know Des? Yeah, yeah, of course. so one night uh, when he first came out to Australia, because uh, Des was, um, you know, obviously a big Irish name at the time. Yeah, he mm-hmm. Irish-American, but he uh, had, at the time, he had very popular Irish career. And so it was like the peak of this. And I saw him at the Gaelic Club, which is an Irish club in Sydney. And because the audience was... Like, I would have said I was probably the only non-Irish person in the entire room. He was, like, doing bits in Gaelic and he was doing all these things. And I loved it. Yeah. Like, there was bits of it I didn't get. Like, there was bits of it that just went over my head. But the watching somebody say something to a room full of people that they all got. Yeah. There's nothing alienating about that. It's so wonderful.
1: Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned Des because just last night I was... um, backstage with him right before his show and we were watching the comedian Angelo Zeroukis, who comes from Canada and he's performing at the Greek Center. His audience (laughs) must have been mostly Greek and it was his closing bit. The audience was losing their minds. It was very clear that they just loved an hour of the show. And then the closing bit seemed to be kind of translating um, Greek songs into English or or maybe pointing out how over the top and dramatic they are. So he'd he'd sing a bit of the song in Greek and people would lose their minds just at that. And Des and I are just watching these waves of, you know, recognition and laughter roll over the audience and we're understanding none of it. Like he'd do the lyric and then he'd go, because in English they're saying this. And everyone would (laughs) be like, yeah, that's so ridiculous. And it was like, wow. Um, But you still can't help but get caught up in it. it. It feels amazing. Uh,
0: so where are you in your comedy career? Like, where does it, as in like, how do you feel about, you know, where you're at? Like, what, what is it that you're like, liking about what it is that you do? You know, what is it that you want to be moving towards? You know, that sort of vibe.
1: Those are good questions. I still feel like a baby in comedy. I mean, I have to recognize that I'm not, you know, that there have
0: you been doing it now? Uh,
1: 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's still baby ish. I still feel like a baby in comedy, but right. I, but I, you know, I recognize there's all new generations coming up. You've
0: and... heard that theory though, before that your kind of age is the amount of years you've been doing it. Right.
1: That seems so, about right. Yeah.
0: yeah. So, you know, 12 is still, you're, you're still adolescent comedy. Yeah. You haven't moved, moved into your moody, you know, kind of teenage years of comedy.
1: Oh no, though. I'm going to get moody. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and you know, I may always feel like that because for me, I didn't get into comedy necessarily with an end goal or with the idea of a career. So it was funny to me when people would say... um, you know, what do you hope to achieve in comedy? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not playing that game. That's why I got into comedy. Right. You know, I'm not doing the work and the, uh, achievement and the outside success. And what is the story of your life? Like, that's why I'm doing comedy. Um, but since comedy has like experienced a boom in the past, what, maybe five years, things have changed even in the 12 years that I've been doing it, where it does seem like a valid career path, and <laughs> you know, a way through which you can really achieve. um, I I'm just happy to do I, I really just want to do stand-up. I'm happy to do stand-up forever. I love it. I have uh I'm working on a pilot uh at, at home in Canada and I'm I'm happy about that too. And I hope that it goes forward and becomes a series that would be incredible. But the funny thing about that is and I don't I don't want to talk the universe out of giving me this, but I uh I didn't ask for it. I, I went out to lunch with this production company, this lovely woman, and she was like, so how do you feel about acting? And I didn't realize what was at stake. You know, I'm just, I'm just in it to be in it. And I was like, I think acting is like embarrassing. You know, I'm like, I'm like, sometimes I'm watching movies. And I'm like, how are you two grown men arguing about a spaceship? Aren't you embarrassed for yourselves? Like, (laughs) how? And so that was like lunch number one. And then we just walked away. Lunch number two was like, okay well, but how might you feel about acting if maybe it was maybe you were playing right. yourself and I was like maybe I don't know you know and then I leave and then lunch number three is like so you know I was realizing it's maybe not fair of me to just expect you to come up with this whole thing on your own what I'm saying is yes. I want to create something with you. <laughs> hey dummy yeah 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 and and I, I was to like, you into this idea <laughs> <laughs> hey dummy what I'm trying to and say and I was is- like oh yeah You know, um, so I feel maybe at odds with what a lot of comedians want to do. You know, so many people get into comedy because they want to have a sitcom or they, I'm just very happy to do stand-up and see where it goes.
0: There's two things I want to talk about there because I I feel like I was lucky here that I started at a point where just before, I grew up in the era, almost the perfect timing. Yeah. I grew up in the era where this became a job in Australia. But when I started it, it wasn't a job, right? Yeah. So I got the luxury of going, I chose this not because I thought I'd get a career out of it. I chose it because I wanted to do it regardless of what that meant. Like you said, you know, I didn't choose this going, I'll do this and this and this. I chose it because I was like, I'd like to get on stage in front of people and tell jokes. Yeah. And then around that, an industry grew that meant that I could also do it as my job and my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think now people, you would be naive to get into it thinking that it's only about telling jokes. I mean there is an industry now there yeah, regardless yeah. of whether you want to involve yourself in it or not, it will be there around you and people will ask you about, you know, those sort of things. The question that I always get asked by people who don't do stand up is why I still do stand up. You know, like people can't understand
1: that <laughs> That hurt my have, heart. That question hurt my heart. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, why you, why why when you have a TV show or why when you have something else, why you're still doing stand up. They can't get their mind around it. What yeah. what rather than me, you know, talking about this because, you know, it's not much of a podcast if I just talk. Uh why do you love stand up? What is it about stand up, you know, the, the the number one thing, the prior, priority being stand up? What it, what puts it above everything else?
1: There's I mean, I'll I'll stumble through this. I'll do my best to articulate, but I think we would both agree that there's something um so magical and special about that live experience. Like you said earlier, it's a group of uh, disparate people that have come together in that moment to share ideas and share laughter, which is transformative. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. Um, personally, for me, what I've, di- what I've discovered, and this is a somewhat selfish way of looking at it, um, is I find that through stand-up, I am like my best Self, I become a better version of myself because it's only stand-up that has made me confront issues that I need to confront in in my real life, and I absolutely have to confront them in order to be better at stand-up. Um, and a small example of that would be really early on, kind of what we were talking about earlier, but really early on, I had a horrible gig, uh, like a real. Uh, it's, it's fun to think about now because it was a quintessential horrible gig. I'd been doing comedy maybe two months in Montreal. And then I was asked to do my first paid gig and it was through the comedy nest. And it was in this little town outside of Montreal called Chateauguay, which I'd never been to. Um, it felt like going back in time. They weren't the, you know, hip urban Montreal crowd that I was used to. And I'd been barely doing stand up. I was asked to do 10 minutes. I may, I did not really have 10 minutes um but I went up there performed to complete silence like no heckling thank god but just complete silence after the gig this woman came up to me <laughs> and said and it was sweet but it's not what you want to hear she goes oh honey we felt so bad for you up there
0: <laughs> I mean I love that so much because oh. I I think she's trying to be sweet no, she but, absolutely right? was, but
1: I thought that's but it's that's the, most the
0: heartbreaking and horrible thing that you could possibly say. I'm
1: like, that's the opposite of the feeling I meant to give you. You're not supposed to sit there for ten minutes just enduring and feeling pity and sadness. Well, I mean, for I guess me. if
0: you want to look at it in a glass half full sort of way, like your intention was to, you know, get a whole bunch of disparate people to combine <laughs> together with an emotion. Oh,
1: and they felt it. So, they felt yeah, it. it.
0: Feels like they all felt the same thing. It's just... I
1: mean, and it just it just piles on. The worst the the worst thing too was I'd uh, gotten a ride there with some other comics I, I didn't know how to get back to Montreal on my own so they had great sets and so then it's a Friday night they're sitting around drinking I'm just like hanging out knowing that like and nobody like that I don't even like myself right now what is happening and then at the same time uh it was my first paid gig so I did 10 minutes uh the club owner was like all right gave me a hundred bucks and that felt like so much and it was like what is this life like this is this is incredible and I went home and kind of thought It was the first time I realized, and I feel like I was late to the game with this, but at least I figured it out. It was the first time that I realized I could stay at home now and beat myself up and feel bad and tell myself, you know, how horrible that was and I shouldn't be doing this, whatever. Or I could be a friend to myself, which was really the first time it ever even occurred to me to be a friend to myself. I could be a friend to myself, just look at things objectively and say, this is what you want to do. You tried. Why did this not go well? And what can you do better next time? Just take all the emotion and anxiety out of it and just move forward. And it's like only through comedy have I found opportunities to do that with myself. So it's, it just, to me, it just feels like my soul's path. It's the thing that I am called to do. It's the thing that I'm called to do.
0: I love that. I mean, you're talking to the right person. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) You
1: see me rolling my eyes being like, Oh God, am I saying this? Uh,
0: You mentioned earlier when we were talking about the, the acting, that you said, um, I don't want to, you know, sort of talk the universe out of, you know, yeah. giving, giving you this thing. <laughs> is that something that you actually believe in? Is there, like, do you have a sort of sense that there is some sort of, you know, universal, you know, karmic energy or something that is connected in that way? Like, is that something that is part of your sort of day-to-day belief system or is that just a thing that you were saying?
1: I mean, I kind of say it. I, I, think, it, I think that... Um, there's something very true about the energy that we put out in the world. And I think there's a lot of stuff we don't understand yet, maybe probably particle physicists understand it. I think there's a scientific basis for all of these ideas. I'm not smart enough to know what they are. I've just kind of vaguely heard about, you know, uh, particles responding to other particles, uh, even though they're separated by a vast distance. So I think, I think we are creating our reality with Uh, you know, the way that we speak and the way that we think about things and the energy that we put into the world.
0: Do you have a higher belief system of some kind? Is there like something that informs you like in a, you know, bigger belief way? Like, you know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, traditional capital G God or anything like that. But like, is there something or it could be that I don't think it can be any of those things.
1: Yeah. I mean, we were talking earlier about love. And I think for me, it comes down to, a feeling that I have. I mean, I think maybe we all don't have this sociopaths wouldn't have it, but you kind of know when you're doing quote the right thing and you know, when you're not, I know, what is that? I don't know. It's a, it's a feeling that you get. Um, so weird though, isn't it? It's mm -hmm. like,
0: Nobody knows that I even did this thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but I know Why it. am I having all these feelings about this thing that nobody else is even aware of?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I I, mean, I had to discover I had to discover through trial and error that I can't cheat on people. I tried that. I thought, if they don't know, you know, whatever. And then, then I would just eat myself alive with guilt. And it didn't really matter. It wasn't, it didn't really matter. But, um... And of course, I'm sure there's people listening going, there's other relationship models. You don't have to be monogamous. You can be poly. You can never take cheating out of the equation. But there was definitely a time where like, I had a monogamous girlfriend and then I cheated on her. No one needs to know. And I I couldn't, I can't do it. There's some, there's something, I don't when know what it in is. in a situation like that, and yeah. I don't,
0: I'm not prying for personal details, yeah. by the way, but just in a hypothetical model, Yeah, you know, we can take it hypothetically. Sure. Well if we need to, or it's so in the past it, that it doesn't even it doesn't matter. matter. Yeah. Are you the sort of person in a situation like that where you're like, well, I, I feel guilty about the thing that I have done, you know, or, or whatever feelings you were having about the thing that you were doing. Uh, I, I now have to tell the other person about this transgression or are you the sort of person who's like, no, I have to deal with the consequences of it myself and keep it to myself and, you know.
1: Yeah. In that moment, I, I would have said I have to deal with the consequences myself because I don't think there's much... If, if you're just doing it to alleviate your guilt or something, yeah. there's not too much value in that. You're just again, right? Yeah. For that reason. But I will say that I'm sure in that situation, it was my own kind of guilt. That relationship dissolved anyway and would have been probably a lot stronger had I been able to address that more honestly right. in the moment. Um
0: it's interesting that, like, I mean, the idea of talking to somebody, I was I was uh, speaking on this podcast and people will have heard it by the time, well, they might not have heard it. They might've just downloaded this one as the first one they've ever listened to. I it. mean, that happens. If, if so, um, I, I did a wonderful uh, podcast the other day with uh, Denise Scott. Oh, I love her. Yeah. She's honestly one of the greatest of all time. Uh, she's 63 years old. She's still doing the best work that she's, you know, done in yeah. her life and her career. I find her an incredible inspiration. She's also been married for 37 years and she told me an amazing story about, you know, the affairs that her and her partner had had like 20 years ago but how last year they spent a year in therapy finally sort of working through something that they'd essentially just put aside for 20 years while they were like, you know, raising kids and doing other things and then when all the kids and other things had gone away, they realised they needed to, you know, so 37 years in, like spending a year talking about you know this sort of thing you yeah know? and it was it's well anyway I won't spot it's a wonderful conversation but it was mind-blowing to me because the idea of signing yourself up for a year there'd be a part of me that's just like it was 22 years ago let's just let's just live on in whatever sense of yeah you know, denial or walls <laughs> we've built up you know clearly we've got through 20 years but she, she seemed to have got great power out of you know and their relationship seems to have, you know, be, be a better relationship now that they've gone through that than what it was before they had, which was just very interesting to me. More than yeah, anything.
1: that's so incredible. I mean, I I sometimes just find it, it's hard to believe. It's I kind of marvel that any two people can have a relationship at all. Right. like an intimate relationship, because we're all just so full of our own baggage and we all are seeing things through our own perspectives and it it goes so deep it goes you know way back to your childhood and stuff you learned before you were even conscious of learning it stuff you learned that you just thought this is how the world is you know the same whatever it was like okay they're telling me the sky is blue I'm looking at my parents and I'm seeing that uh drama is a huge part of a relationship (laughs) like whatever it is you learn all these things when you're little and that
0: well I mean I I do a little bit at the start of my show and it it might seem to the audience like a really kind of inconsequential joke. It's about the fact that when I first moved to the city, the thing that I was most kind of like weirded out by was pet dogs. Because when you grow up on a farm, you have yeah. dogs, but you don't have pet dogs. And people treat pet dogs in a very different way to... And like the routine itself, really is just along the premise of working dogs versus pet dogs. Please right? tell me that "Paw
1: and Order" is still in there. "Paw and Order" is still in there. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. and uh, <laughs> I heard you working on that the other night. I loved it. I loved the whole thing. But, but the yeah.
0: whole point of it is that it's meant to be about that idea of going, because the, the the rest of the show becomes a little bit more of an exploration of that idea of the perspectives that you have that you don't even know are not yes. the perspective that everybody else has. Yeah, Like I was genuinely raised just in my life like that's how dogs are treated. That is how dogs are. And the minute you suddenly are in a world where people are like, oh, no, 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 this is a whole other way that you can relate with dogs. It's meant to be as much a story about the idea of those things that we're raised with that yeah. are intrinsic to us that we don't stop and think about until we are confronted with something that makes us stop and think about them. Yeah, right? okay we, we need to finish up soon uh, but I uh, have a couple of questions I want to ask you before we go okay uh, firstly we've kind of talked about belief uh, which takes us to the next thing which is death I just like to know if, it, if it's a thing that you think about yeah um, if it's a thing that you have a theory about um, what happens yeah. like, are you are uh, like what your thoughts are on that and you know what well, that's the starting point and then we can see what happens yeah
1: sure let's get into it um, I don't fe- I can see that some of my friends I mean we talk about it I can see that people kind of fear death or think about it a lot, or um, I know that it's there, but it's kind of an abstract concept to me in a way, like, personally, I'm not afraid of it, it doesn't inform my life, I, I, I'm not worried about it, um, my biggest experience with death so far would have been in 2015, that was actually uh, right before I came to the comedy festival, my mom died in February of 2015, and it was the, you know, biggest death in my life the biggest grief that I felt and it's only through going through that I think that I understand a little bit about grief and that I solidified these ideas that um I maybe didn't have a reason to have before then I don't know what happens after we die no one does I don't spend too much time thinking about it or wondering about it um but I found the idea Like, I love that I'm biologically related to my mom and I never really thought about it so much before. But the fact that she's gone, but I'm still here and I'm experiencing things and I have, you know, the things that she taught me and even her DNA, that just feels so great to me in a way that she's kind of still alive or still around. And I just never had a reason to consider that before. So um, I, I guess I feel like hmm yeah this is intense i'm looking at picture of this kind of psychedelic cat you have on your wall over there i mean and, yeah well it's, it's um,
0: weirdly enough that that's actually you know, a cat that just passed away oh. and james Fosdike, who does all my art for my shows and stuff yeah. just drew that as a, like a little oh beautiful you know, of, like you know yeah so he, his name was ziggy and so it's kind of like a ziggy stardust he had two different yes. colored eyes and uh he's so james just did that as a like a nice little um uh, you know when he died, so it's, it's so uh, in my barely uh, decorated house at the moment. I have uh, a couple of pictures of my recently departed. Uh, it's so great. Cat up on the wall.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess like I, I keep trailing off because I don't want to sound too vague or cheesy, but it's genuine, genuinely how I feel is I, I'm, I don't think death is an end, you know, and even even with a cat with Ziggy, right? He influenced your life, he changed your life. You think about him, I um. I'm not too disturbed by death
0: so um, when when and when yeah. and if when and if let's, let's I die you yeah you die uh, what is it that you would hope people remember about you or what is it what impact is it that you hope that you might have had you know on with this part of whatever you yeah. know, our human existence is
1: I would hope that people would just remember kind moments that we had together. And, and people it would people would have a hard time thinking of the time Deanne Smith hurt my feelings, the time Deanne Smith, you know, spoke an unkind word to me or whatever. And um I have such a poor memory that I'm lucky that that happens to me a little bit in life, where someone will go. Five years ago, I told you this, and you said this thing to me, and it was amazing. And I'm like, wow, I don't even remember that conversation. You know, I have a really terrible memory, so I don't. I don't necessarily have a vision of a grand, uh, not necessarily a grand impact, but if in general the impact is more positive than negative,
0: is there is there any preconceived? Is there any misconceptions that people have about you? I assume with most people, mm. there's always something that you know, even if it's not true, yeah, that, that we imagine people think about us that isn't that isn't true. Is there anything that fits into that category for you? Do you think, th- think there's a wrong impression that people have about any aspect of who you are? I
1: think so, yeah, and I only only through getting feedback from doing comedy and people only see for the most part, I mean, that's my public persona is the standup persona. So they only see this one aspect of my personality, but I'm a lot more melancholy than people realize. Uh, I'm a lot more introverted than people realize because those aren't, those aren't the qualities on display. Um, and one thing I'm worried about that people might think, um, is that I am really bad at communication. I'm really disorganized for whatever reason. I'm sure it's like a bit of anxiety and avoidance coping. But I find out later that I've ignored a message or someone, or it's gone to the hidden folder in Facebook or whatever. So my fear, I guess, is that there's a certain amount of people out there who's like, why is Deanna ignoring me? Or she doesn't like me or something. It's really just like I'm so disorganized that I probably didn't even get that message.
0: I um, uh, My phone broke at Christmas. Oh, no. And so I got a new phone. <laughs> but it literally... Literally, that didn't even have the so the the backup was all. but Anyway, so I've been r- genuinely doing the whole. Every time I get a text message from someone, I, I've had to do the I have a new phone. Who is this? Which you know has become the cliche thing that yeah. people say to someone that they've you know erased from their phone or like. But I've been starting from scratch, and because I've been so busy doing other things, I just I could have sat down at some stage and like sort of yeah sent a message to all my Facebook friends or to or yeah. you know like rung around or found someone to give me official numbers or whatever but I just haven't because I'm terrible at life and so there is a few messages that I haven't got back to because I'm just so embarrassed that I'm gonna have to write you know because they'll be like oh it was so great to see your show last night you know I love this yeah and then you have to go who is this oh yeah (laughs) so so I can totally uh, relate to that, I must say. Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, we should finish would up because, um, you know, you're at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, then you're at the Sydney Comedy Festival, yes? Uh, yeah, one Comedy day,
1: uh, April 24th.
0: Uh, Perth, did you say as well? Where else Perth
1: are you? Perth is, I believe, April 27th. It's a Friday. Just one night in Sydney, one night in Perth, and then I'm out of here. And
0: then what happens after that for the rest of the year? Well, and where, where can people, like, you know, the, the plug bit of it, you know? So if they've... Oh, if right, this, is the first, this part. If this is the first time, perhaps, that they've you know heard you and they've made it this far that means they they want more that's what my I found traditionally oh sure Uh, so where is the more what would you like to direct them to
1: you I used to have the most passive-aggressive cards in the world (laughs) and I thought they were funny and then I realized no this is like another example of me pushing people away and on one side was a picture of me holding a sign that said jokes and it said Dan Smith flip it over and it just said google it (laughs) um So, uh, I I have managed to be the most successful Deanne Smith. Uh, so you can I just that's
0: good. You I can love just that.
1: you can just Google it, um, and my social stuff is just my name. I think yeah. Insta and Twitter is Deanne underscore Smith.
0: Yeah. So find you where they are. I have a I, website. I, I subscribed to that as well. I yeah. have a website, but I haven't even like somebody messaged me the other day and said. Oh, I tried to buy a link for your show and okay. it went to last year's show. And I said, yeah, because I've not updated the website. Oh,
1: good. I'm glad I'm not the only one that does year. this.
0: Well, because I don't think anyone's going there. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm where you are. If you're on Facebook, look up me on Facebook and th- I'm there. Yeah. If you're on Instagram, look up me on Instagram. I mean, wherever you are, yeah. find me there. You don't <laughs> have to go to some whole new place. You can just stay where you are and look up me there. So they can do that about you as well.
1: Yes. And I'd like to say this, wherever you are. I'm there in your heart. Just feel me in your heart.
0: <laughs> Thank you, mate. It's like yeah. brilliant. Thank you.